Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we looked at Psalm 2, which has its foundation in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, particularly verse 14, in which God promises David that he will be the father of the future descendants of David who are going to occupy the throne, and they will be his sons. Unique feature of the Psalms that we have chosen for uh, this series is that they are all concerned with the relationship of God, the Davidic king, and the nations, but particularly the nations. God has chosen the Davidic king to bring about his kingdom to fulfill the promises which he had already made to Abraham, that through Abraham and his seed, there would be blessing to all the nations. And since that promise, there have been great expectations. And we live in great expectations. Psalm 2 has shown us that the nations are rebelling. And as this week shows, continue to rebel. I don't know if you saw CNN news, but in London there was an attack by a terrorist attack on three people who were attacked by a knife. The peace that we sing about in the Advent season and that we long for, where is it? Right? But all of these threats, the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, are in vain. Because God has put on the throne his king, whom he calls my son. And guarantees that all the ends of the earth will eventually submit to him. Eventually. The unique thing about Psalm 2 is that, and I will switch to 72 because it fits in with that. The unique thing about Psalm 2 that I want to highlight with you is that although there is that threat in verse 9, that the Davidic king will ultimately smash the rebelling nations to pieces, which sounds harsh. Why do you read a psalm like that for Advent? In all of the psalms where the issue of God and the nations is highlighted, there is always grace. Because in verse 10, God invites the nations to serve him and the Davidic king. Yes, there is a threat if you don't, the Davidic king will come in anger and smash you. But there's also the promise. Everyone who takes refuge in God and in the anointed king will be happy. And everyone is in the pursuit of happiness. On that note, there is a very interesting link between Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. 
The NIV's translation doesn't do justice to the issue, but I would like to invite you to look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 should be translated as follows. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him happy. Not blessed, as the NIV translates it, but happy. Isn't that interesting? That means, brothers and sisters, that the Psalter, which is uh, organized in the following manner, Psalms 1 and 2, as I pointed out to you last week, begin the Psalter as an introduction. The Psalter is divided into five parts, and at the end of each part, there is a benediction, a blessing. As you see, for example, in verses 18 through 19, they don't belong to the psalm. They are the two verses that end book two. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. That ends book two. But what scholars have noted is that Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, and begins the Psalter, it's at the end of the second book, book 2, which ends with Psalm 72, which is another messianic psalm, that these two psalms, as it were, are a frame around a whole series of laments in which Israel and the Davidic king pour out their heart because the world just isn't the way it's supposed to be. Now, how does that connect with us today? Well, again, we were reminded of Psalm 2 that the nations are in revolt. Uh, but constantly, as I watch the news, I don't know which channel you watch, but it's, I watch uh, CNN and Fox every once in a while to kind of see what, what they're saying about the events. But there's two themes. Of course, what happened in San Bernardino, and the other is the election which is, you know, almost still a year off, but the candidates are up and running. And the candidates have something in common with our psalm. They promote their great expectations for what, if they are elected, they would do. Psalm 72 is a prayer for a king. The title begins as follows. It says, of Solomon. Along with Psalms 172, these are the only two psalms that have that title. But in the Hebrew, it's not clear whether it is of Solomon or for Solomon. If it's of Solomon, then this is Solomon's prayer. But if it is for Solomon, then someone else prays for Solomon, probably, perhaps, at his coronation. We don't know, because the psalm itself doesn't say so. But uh, it could be, and scholars project and raise the possibility that it could be. But that's why I read the next, however, I'd like to propose that it is a, a prayer for Solomon, and for whoever occupies the throne. Look with me in your Bibles at 
verse 20. Verse 20 says, This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. So on the whole, most of the Psalms in book, books 1 and 2 are prayers of David. If you put the superscription of Solomon, if you join that with the postscript in verse 20, that these are the prayers of David, the scholars say, the commentaries say, it's likely that this is a prayer of David for his son. Either way, it is a prayer for a king. And I would suggest to you that in this psalm, we have what I would call, also call a prayerful job description for a king. It has great expectations, but it also has a prayerful job description of a king. And so let's look at the psalm. I won't be able to, in the time here, I won't be able to uh, look at every verse, but I want to point out several verses And as a way of introduction, I would like to highlight that the basic and most important verse is verse 1. Give the king, I'll give my translation, O God, give the king your justice or your legal decisions, the royal son with your righteousness. That is the basic prayer. It's a command where the petitioner commands God to give the king God's righteousness and God's justice. In other words, the royal administration of justice and righteousness is not something which human beings can do by themselves in their capacity as governors over people. It's a gift from God. Solomon himself recognized them when God, in 1 Kings chapter 3, invited Solomon to uh, ask anything he wanted. If you remember the story, Solomon asked for wisdom to judge and govern the people righteously. That is the basic principle. These two principles are the basic virtues of anyone in a position of government. I haven't heard too much about that from the candidates. There are all kinds of claims. And particularly one, and I'm sure you know who I'm speaking of, says things that later on he does not recant but should recant very boisterous, and thinks what he can't prove. But I haven't heard much about justice and righteousness. Yet justice and righteousness are the foundation to anyone's rule, be it a king, a president, whatever name you want to put to it, someone that God has put in authority to rule over a group of people, the basis for that is God's 
justice, and righteousness. Without those two virtues, it just isn't going to go. Let me illustrate. In 2 Samuel 7, God has given David rest. God's given David rest. And then in 2 Samuel 7, verse 15, there's this little note that David ruled Israel with justice and righteousness. And then there follow a long list of his officials. That's his cabinet. After that, however, David commits sin with Bathsheba. You all know the story. And that's when things go worse. Absalom takes advantage of it. In 2 Kings 15, Absalom sits himself by the roadside and says, Oh, are you on the way to see the king to uh, have justice done? Well, the king is too busy and, you know, he's not administering justice and righteousness anymore. But if you elect me, I will. And with that, the revolution happened. In chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, the list of cabinet officials is repeated. There's one important change. The note about David ruling with righteousness and justice is not repeated. Why not? Because since his case with Bathsheba, which certainly aren't a demonstration of the royal virtues of justice and righteousness, would you agree? Everything goes downhill. But justice and righteousness are the key to right government. And in our psalm, that that theme comes to expression in four Four topics. The king's righteousness and justice comes to expression first of all, and most of all, in how the king treats the poor. Secondly, God's, the king's justice and righteousness, which first of all comes from God, shows itself also in agricultural fertility. Sean in his prayer mentioned there's floods in India, drought in Africa, California, and go on. We just call these natural disasters. The press never mentions God in these things, does it? But our psalm would suggest that when these things happen, when there is drought, maybe there's no justice and righteousness. Because if there is justice and righteousness in society, there is fertility. Secondly, the king's longevity. You know, when a king is enthroned, it was that way with Solomon, and it still is that way in the British tradition. When the king is enthroned, long live the king, right? 
That's what everybody wishes. And the third and the fourth and final is international influence. International influence. I'd like to highlight those four aspects with you. And uh, notice particularly then I'd like to highlight the connection between verses 1 and then 2 to 4. 2 to 4. A problem with the psalm is the verbs. And there's a little footnote in the NIV in verse 2, for example, or may he. Similarly, in verse 3 through 11, and then in 17. And I would add to that, but this is not a class in Hebrew. But that is a problem. The NRSV translates most of the verbs, and rightly so, as may he. So that the whole prayer is a series of petitions that, based, that is based on the one command to God in verse 1. God, give the king this, and then may he. That's why I said great expectations. And notice verse 2. May he judge your people in righteousness. And who are your people? Your afflicted ones with justice. Translators have a bias. And when the translators come from a wealthy country, like ours, they don't know how to translate the word poor. Because the word is poor. The afflicted ones are the poor. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. And then notice he goes, let's just jump to verse 4. May he defend the afflicted ones among the people and save the children of the needy, which is another word for poor. And may he crush the oppressor of the poor. So what is the first thing that the king ought to do in order to demonstrate that in his rule he is really showing the virtues which God has given him? Justice and righteousness. How do you know that? I haven't heard much from our campaigners on that. But our psalm says that it comes to expression, first of all, in the way the king deals with the poor. Isn't that interesting? If you want to know a righteous society, it's a society that takes care of the poor. The marginalized. Those who haven't got a chance. I was talking with my neighbor yesterday. He's a Polish refugee, fled Poland during the communist regime, an immigrant like myself. And this is what he says. He's a Roman Catholic, a believer like you and me. I fled communist rule because they promised to take care of the poor, and they didn't. Here, at least, I came to a country where if I work, 
I can at least buy a house, a car. I can pursue happiness. Everyone wants to pursue happiness. Everyone has a right to pursue happiness. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. But that only happens when there is justice and righteousness. And then notice verse 3, which sits smack in the middle of verses 2 and 4. Would you agree with me that verses 2 and 4 basically treat the same theme? The way the king should treat the marginalized. Those who don't have access to the good things which God has put in his creation. If the king does that, then the mountains will bring, the NIV says, prosperity. Okay, it'll bring prosperity to the people. But the Hebrew word is much bigger than prosperity. Because in our culture, when you talk about prosperity, what, it's the bottom line, it's the, the Dow in New York, right? And my stocks and what I'm getting out of it. It's materialism, consumerism. But the Hebrew word is shalom. It's peace. And shalom may include that you're doing well economically, but it's not the end of it. It's not just economic prosperity. It is well-being in a full-orbed sense. And you can only have shalom if there's justice and righteousness. Without justice and righteousness, there is no shalom. I know we can get upset about the terrorist. But let's just admit and confess that we are living in a country that has militarily oppressed people. Let's just admit it. We live in a country that has, in the past, oppressed people. We call it the security state. We want to make sure that we're safe. And so we go in cahoots with dictators like in Brazil, in Argentina, right? We shouldn't be too romantic about ourselves. Let's just be honest. Righteousness and justice demonstrates itself how? In the way we care for the poor. If you read the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, you know that Solomon had a lot of virtues about him, but in the end, it, he never really lived up to it. And the prophets critiqued the kings, and I want to invite you to turn with me to one of the prophets that critiqued the kings, and that's Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. 
First of all, verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. And what's that? Rescue from the hand of his oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless or widow, and do not shed innocent blood. You see the connection? To do justice and righteousness is to take care of the poor, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. They are the ones in the society of that time and also in today's society who are marginalized. They have trouble. Same chapter, look with me at verse 15. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. Verse 16, notice the connection again. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? So you say you know the Lord. We Christians use that language too. Oh yeah, I know the Lord. Man, it's great to know the Lord. Okay. Show me. How do you take care of the poor? Right? Show me. Show me. So there you have the double connection, which repeats the uh, fertility of the land in verse 3. That's the second topic. It comes up again, uh, for example, turn with me to verse 16. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like the Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the sea. And in Leviticus 25, God promises Israel that if it keeps his law, his stipulations, then the land will give its fruit and you will be able to eat the fruit of the land in peace, in safety. And what does God require of us? That we do righteousness and justice. And how do we know that? That we're really doing it. Depends on how we take care of the poor. Because that whole theme comes up again in verses 12 through 14. He picks up the theme of the of the poor from verses 2 and 4, and he expands it. But before I go to those verses, those verses are the basis for the, thir- the, uh, the fourth topic, international influence. If the king administers justice by taking care of the poor, he will have a long life. 
than really the people's wish. Long live the king will happen. And if he really does that, he will also expand his international influence. Let's just read the verses. He says in verse 8, He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which recalls the promise in Psalm 2, right? In Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you what? The rule over all the nations, yes, the ends of the earth. They will become your inheritance. Well, that will happen if, and one, the king administers justice by taking care of the poor. The desert tribe, verse 9, the desert tribes will bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarsus and of the distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Zeba will present him with gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. In Psalm 2, God said to the nations, serve me, right? Serve the Lord. Here again the wish. May all nations serve him. Why will this happen? Because, verse 12, he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will redeem. The NIV says rescue, but the word Hebrew word is redeem. The king will act like a kinsman and redeem, buy back those who've been in debt. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi. If someone who is poor has no kinsman, then God promises to be that kinsman. And that job is now given to the king. The king is to be the kinsman, kinsman, and redeem, buy back those who for some reason or another lost their property, lost whatever they had, and the king should be the kinsman. Isn't that interesting? International influence. Here are politicians. America should once more take on that global role. Well, how do you get it? By showing the world how you take care of your poor. And that global influence comes to expression also in verse 17. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. That's a longevity claim. It's the same as verse 5. But notice, all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him happy. All nations will be blessed through him reminds us of God's promise to Abraham. God called Abram out of all of the nations to be a chosen people 
and their mission was to be a blessing among the nations. But how's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18, please. Genesis 18. That's going to happen. In Genesis 18, I'll read verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. The key words of Psalm 72, verse 1. Righteousness and justice. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Great nation, great name, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. How is this going to happen? If Abraham teaches his children how to do righteousness and justice. That's what the king, as a son of Abram, has got to do too. Now isn't it interesting, as we looked quickly at these four points, how the king takes care of the needy, agricultural fertility, longevity for the king, and then fourthly, and more importantly, international influence that God's reign will be established again over the whole earth. The primary characteristic of the king's reign is how he deals with the poor. Military exploits, great building programs, as was typical of the Assyrian kings, the Egyptian kings, even today, the pyramids are still there, right? Military exploits, big building programs, yes, those were the virtues and characteristics of a great king. Not so in Psalm 72. The primary way is, how do you take care of the poor? A true king it's not about enabling the powerful. But those who are without power, the marginalized. That will bring peace. When there's peace, even the land will show its fruit. And when that happens, Everyone will be magnetically attracted to that model of justice and righteousness. Well, as I mentioned, all you have to do is read the Old Testament. You know that the Davidic monarchy never lived up to its, what it's supposed to do. Solomon didn't, nor did his sons. But there is one who did. After we celebrate Christmas, we go into the liturgical part of Epiphany. And Psalm 72 is both for Advent and for Epiphany. Because according to Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born, 
in a lowly stable. Wise men from the east came and brought him what? Exactly what is wished for in verse 10. The gifts. And these gifts aren't just Christmas gifts. No. The word gifts here means tribute. And when people bring tribute to a king, they're saying, we are here to serve you. The wise men fulfilled that wish of Israel. And the context shows that this king is anything but what human kings typically are. Because after all, the monarchy was a human invention. Israel wanted it like the nations. The king they brought gifts to laid in a manger, born to a poor couple. Yes, he was of the Davidic line. And according to Scripture, he is the son of David, greater than Solomon, but totally different than Herod. Right? Totally different than Herod. And when God raised him up from the dead, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, he raised him up and put him above all things so that everything is subject to him. What does that mean for you and me today? It means, first of all, that like the early church, we ought to take care of the poor. When the early church was persecuted in chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, it prayed to God for grace and power to preach the gospel. The place where they were was filled with the Holy Spirit in response to that prayer. And Luke tells us there were no poor among them. Isn't that interesting? Those words come from Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. The law for Jubilee. Israel never practiced Jubilee. It was in the books, but never practiced it. God empowered the church with the Spirit, and it was able to practice Jubilee, take care of the poor. And the church spread like wildfire. Isn't that interesting when you think of it? It started in that insignificant city, Jerusalem, and it's all the way over here, right here, on the corner of Spencer and Buffalo. Right? The second way that we can do it is to pray. Pray this prayer. Because Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says that we should pray on all occasions for those who govern over us. It's my feeling that we forget that an awful lot. But if you don't know what to say when you pray for those who govern over us, and not just our land, but other lands as well, then pray Psalm 72. But really, 
in closing, isn't Psalm 72 what we're really saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will, and that will wants righteousness and justice. Your will be done on earth, right, right here, as it is in heaven. Isn't that what we expect? Then, then maybe, and we know it will be, in the end, when Christ returns, yes, his rule will have been established. In the meantime, if you really believe in the Lord, you'll want to take care of the poor because it's the key to justice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as your church we may care for those around us who are poor, that we may elect those who recognize their calling to establish justice and righteousness and programs that care for the poor, And Father, we pray that you will help each one of us individually also to pray for the rulers. And we pray even now that your kingdom may come and that your will may be done. Amen.